Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. LRT is back in the news, and I'll tell you why, if you didn't hear the intro just a few moments ago to the show. The uh, Waterloo has an LRT now. It's called the ION system. And the plan has always been that it right now goes from Kitchener to Waterloo. The plan is to extend it now to Cambridge. That's level two or step two of the program. However, a report came out the other day that says the cost to do the extension from Kitchener to Cambridge has now tripled in price from 2021. That's the re- most recent bill prediction was $1.5 billion. That was 2021. We're now in 2023, and they're now saying the cost is $4.5 billion. Well, uh, you may be aware, if you're not, I don't know where you've been. Uh, you may be aware we are building an LRT or supposedly building an LRT. What does this mean for the price of our LRT? Let me bring in Professor Matty Simiotaki. He is with the University of Toronto. He's an expert in infrastructure and transportation and planning. Joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, nice to be with you, Scott. Well, this um, this report about Waterloo, I mean, apples and apples are not necessarily apples and oranges, but boy, this sounds a little bit, um, what's the word, daunting or frightening? Uh, what word would you use for hearing a number like this and then us waiting to hear what ours is going to be? Concerning, troubling, <laughs> foreshadowing, <laughs> foreboding. <laughs> Tell me when to stop. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you're a human thesaurus on this one. Yeah, precisely. I mean, this is this is this is not good. I mean, these these projects uh, uh, almost always go up in cost, and they're almost always late. So we know that. But a tripling of cost in two or three years is really something uh, uh, to be mindful of. And uh, we know that costs during the pandemic uh, have skyrocketed. We know about inflation. We know about uh, supply chain issues. We know about interest rates up. But a tripling of cost is really well beyond uh, what we're seeing in other segments of the construction market. And I would be really concerned if I were building an LRT elsewhere. And this is not necessarily just theoretical. I mean, this is clearly that we're talking about Waterloo's price. It won't be necessarily the same, but there's the one that's being built in Toronto right now that has gone through the roof and pricing and delays and everything else. I mean, there's something, there's a real life application that we can look at and see something like this. We're seeing the cost skyrocket in real time on the Eglinton Crosstown. Uh, those costs are going up as the project is underway. Uh, we're seeing it on the Ontario line as the costs uh, have gone up. Uh, they went up by billions of dollars before a shovel really hit the ground in a meaningful way. So uh, the costs are going up, and I expect that we'll see this right across the system uh, for big projects that are taking place now. Again, I, Waterloo, may there may be reasons why Waterloo's would be different from ours. Uh, maybe ours is not three times the price, but if ours is not three times more now from the last two or three years, what would be different in ours from theirs? What would be some of the factors perhaps that could factor into this that would say ours might not be that high? Or would you expect it to be that high? Uh, typically, the best way to f- uh, forecast what's going to happen on your project is not to necessarily look only at the details of your own project internally, although that's important, but rather to look at a reference class, a comparable class of projects that are being done in a similar jurisdiction or with a similar technology, and look at what's happened with those projects. So I would say if you look at Eglinton, if you look at Waterloo, if you look at the Ontario line, uh, you kind of get a ballpark of what's going to happen, and those projects have skyrocketed in cost. And so I would expect that over time, uh, you're going to see costs go up on the Hamilton line. Now, whether it's a tripling, 
Uh, we don't know exactly. Uh, there may, as you said, be local factors why that project has gone up so much, or maybe uh, the specifications have changed. Uh, but generally, uh, when it comes to Hamilton, uh, I would be looking for costs to start rising uh, as more details come in. Uh, Matthew Van Donge, who I know you've spoken to from The Spectator many times on these stories, has contacted Metrolinx, has contacted the province. I've done the same. They are not offering any kind of estimates right now. They're not offering any answers on what pricing might be in play. Should we read anything into the fact that they won't give any answers, or is that just something that would be standard operating procedure? I think it's pretty standard, and especially right now, the the pricing is so dynamic. I mean, the numbers are just bouncing around that once you put a number out into the world, that number becomes anchored uh, and people start to anchor their thinking around what that number is uh, and then start talking about cost overruns uh, from that number. So I think actually Metrolinx uh, is right in this point to not put a number out there until they have a lot more details and until we're really close to getting it locked in and for the project to start constructing. And then that should be debated in the community. But I think it's quite clear that this price is going to go up Uh, as we move forward. But when you talk about an anchored price, you're talking about within the community, but what about the fact that now we've got another example in Waterloo? Won't the construction, won't the builders, won't those who might be bidding on a project look at the price that they've said for Waterloo and say, that's now where the market has gone? Yeah, each 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 new project resets the market. So that's right. So all of those who are bidding on this project will also be looking at what's happened in the market, uh, and they'll be pricing accordingly. And it's clear that costs are skyrocketing. Uh, you know, we, as I said, we've seen it with the Ontario line as those bids uh, have come in and then and then been locked in for construction. We've seen it with Eglinton, which has happened as the project is being constructed and the prices are skyrocketing. So we're seeing it right across the system, uh, and there and uh, those will likely uh, come to bear uh, when it, when it comes to Hamilton. Hamilton as well. Uh, you're not a bureaucrat, which is probably a good thing. Um, but nonetheless, so, I mean, it, it may be an unfair question to ask you, but do you think there ever comes a point when the government looks at these things and says, you know, it's no longer worth it? I know that they've got, you know, the city has an agreement in writing that the two higher levels of government will cover this and all cost overruns, but d- does there come a point when they simply say it's just not feasible anymore? So there are meant to be stage gates that as the costs come in, you out, you weigh them out uh, with the benefits. And that's what a cost benefit is, right? You take a piece of paper, you draw a line down the middle, uh, essentially, and you try to weigh out what are all of the costs financially, environmentally, socially, economically, and then you weigh those out uh, against the benefits. And there does come a moment in the life of every project where you say that's too expensive for the benefits we're going to get. I think in this instance, the fact that it's the provincial government, which is one removed from municipal taxpayers, uh, but also has a giant balance sheet, I think we're unlikely to get to a point with many of these projects where they ultimately pull the plug. Uh, But we will see. And if it gets too expensive and if there's any uh, financial hits to the government's balance sheet, then we might start to see those conversations uh, taking shape. And I mean, look, one one of the areas that you study, one of your areas of expertise is in transportation. Is there a, I know that some people who are here this are going to clench their teeth when I even ask this question, but do we reach a point when the government might say, look, we're going to pay for new transit for you, but electric buses is the new way to do it or something else? Can you see a point when the particular style of transit becomes more too, too expensive, and but others are offered? Well, we all do that in our personal lives, right? Like if things, if one thing becomes too expensive, we start to look for substitutes and alternatives. Uh, and at some point with LRT, we might get to 
to that moment. But uh, once a promise has been made and that anchor has been set and thrown thrown down, it will be much harder politically to go back on it. So I think unless uh, there's something disastrous with the provincial finances, they will continue to push forward and look at LRT. But this is how these projects uh, skyrocket in costs that, uh, you know, the community gets behind it. They anchor to the financial number. The costs start to go up and everyone is committed and it's really hard to go back on it uh, once that commitment has been made. Uh, And it takes real discipline uh, to be able to say this is no longer uh, worth, uh, this project is no longer worth worth the cost and you often don't see that once these projects get going and they build a momentum of themselves for themselves it's very hard to cancel them and go with another alternative and just before i let you go what what about the idea this has been as you i i know you know this this has been a very contentious issue in this city it's been a divisive issue when numbers like this start to bounce around i mean on the one hand you could say okay we've okayed this and so now everyone's going to rally around this But when the numbers like this start to happen, does that not just make the divisions even starker? It does, and it creates one of these uh, moments where people start to reopen the project and reinvestigate and re-examine. It just creates these little cracks, these little fissures that uh, people who may have opposed the project can try to start sticking into them and try to see if there's ways to uh, find alternatives or go back on it. So that these are the, there are these political moments, these branching points, if you will, uh, that really start to reopen debates and discussions about these big projects. And uh, they can become really quite contentious. And the financing, the numbers, the cost uh, can be one of those key moments that reopens debates about these big projects. And especially as the planning Go, drags out and goes over many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maddie Simiatiki from the University of Toronto. I uh, really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have had a number over the last months, last number of months, we've had a number of stories of stuff going on with China in this country. Interference in the country, um, reports of all kinds of things. You've been, I'm sure, following along or hearing them, whether you want to or not. It's it's really hard to escape some of these, whether it's from the two Michaels or whatever else. Well, there's a story in the Globe and Mail today, and the headline is China views Canada as a high priority for interference, CSIS report says. It's a puzzling thing for me, but one of the more puzzling and disconcerting things in it is that it suggests that China has been targeting Michael Chong and his family that is back in Hong Kong. He's an MP. He's a conservative MP who's a critic of what's been going on. And he has been targeted specifically. And according to what we're hearing today, the government has known about this for some time. He is just learning about this through the story in the Globe and Mail. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, joins us now. Duff, thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Hello? Do we have Duff? There's Duff. There you are. How are you? Thanks for doing this tonight, Duff. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, There's two different parts to the story I want to get to. Let's start with the whole idea of um, the more specific one of Michael Chong. When you hear a story that an MP's family is being targeted, uh, we, we obviously, as a country, can't entirely control what another country does. But it really, I mean, it really sounds from these reports like he and his family have been hung out to dry here, have they not? Uh, well, you would think that he would have been alerted by somebody. It's not necessarily true that the Prime Minister's office was informed by CSIS of this uh, happening. 
but um, the CSIS can't directly in, interact with an MP uh, without the uh, authority of the Prime Minister um, making the security uh, information available to that MP um, because the MP has to have clearance to, to get that information. And there is a committee of MPs that does have that clearance, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the MP involved would be on that committee or that the, that committee would be getting that kind of regular updates about one specific MP. So the whole system is set up, unfortunately, right now to cover these things up and not alert, alert people who should know. And the Liberals designed that system and it, it's inadequate. It needs to be changed. It's, it's too much under the control of the Prime Minister. And it is also uh, partisan as a result and is not effectively preventing foreign interference. And everyone knew this back in 2019 because it was designed this way by the Liberals as partisan and, and Prime Minister controlled. Uh, one of the one of the lines now. Michael Chong wrote a long uh, statement today about this, but one of the lines I thought was was it was right at the end uh, was really telling. Here's this is a direct quote from him: "The Trudeau government's inaction suggests they will not protect Canadians of differing political viewpoints from the threat activities of authoritarian states." Uh, whether you change the take out the word Trudeau governments or just the government's action, I, I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I mean, he's obviously partisan; they're partisan. But nonetheless, um, it, it does raise in my mind. As soon as I heard that, I thought, I wonder if this had been a liberal MP who'd been threatened, if they would have been told this quicker. In which case, this does then become a partisan thing rather than just a mechanical thing within our system. Very much so, and that's the big question. Um, he's assuming that CSIS informed the PMO. That may not have happened, and that's why we need a public inquiry. And instead we have David Johnston, a friend of the Prime Minister's, who is examining what happened. And before that we had Morris Rosenberg, who was uh, part of the Trudeau Foundation, so would David, David Johnston, and he was reviewing what had been done. I mean, none of this has any independence. These are friends of Trudeau and the Trudeau family who are reviewing whether there's been foreign interference in Canadian politics. And it's, as I said, it's a partisan process. It is controlled by the PMO. It's far too secretive. And as a result, it's not working. For for reasons... And everyone knew it wasn't going to work. And uh, the Liberals claimed it was effective. And we need to finally have an independent system uh, with a uh, committee that's completely independent from the prime minister monitoring this and uh, with all the security uh, uh, authorities reporting it to uh, the police and to the other enforcers of the law, like the Commissioner of Canada Elections, who enforces our election law, to ensure that there's follow-up and investigations and people are charged when they're violating laws. I mean, for reasons that go, I mean, there's the human reason that, you know, we're thankful that nothing has happened to Michael Chong's family, just on, on a personal level, on a human level, we're thankful for that as far as we know. But what, what would have been the political fallout here if we had found out that one of his family members had disappeared or, or who knows what? I mean, if, if something horrible had happened to his family in the meantime, th- this would have been a 10 times worse situation, wouldn't it have been? Very much so. And 10 times worse for, for uh, CSIS for not informing him so that he could pass on the information to his family 
or if they passed it on to the prime minister's office or this uh, uh, this uh, critical protocol that was set up for foreign interference by the prime minister that was made up of people who serve at his pleasure and report only to him. Um, again, a, a system with lacking imp- independence and impartiality would never n- never worked and, and clearly hasn't worked. Um, if he had been informed over there, uh, the prime minister's protocol uh, system had been informed and they didn't pass on the information to the MP, then the political costs would be for them. Uh, but what we know for sure is this is not a system that's ever going to work. It was never designed to work. It was designed to cover up things that embarrassed the liberals and uh, possibly cover up things that would uh, hurt opposition MPs. We don't know that part. That's this new story. And, and we need a public inquiry to determine what the PM was informed about and when they were informed and what they did about it. And David Johnston is not the person to do that inquiry because he is an old family friend of the Trudeaus, according to both Trudeau and Johnston. In fact, we filed a complaint with the Ethics Commissioner that Prime Minister Trudeau violated the Conflict of Interest Act, the federal ethics law, by appointing and handing a government contract to his friend. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to give government money to your friends. Well, and and this and and the thing that has to be investigated. It seems every week there's another layer. Like this, this has become. I don't think, and we got to run here, but th- I don't think this is any longer a simple investigation of one topic. There seem to be tentacles popping out everywhere in this thing. Very much so. There's lots of things to investigate. The role of everyone involved, and a parliamentary committee could do it. Uh, they can demand any information from any government body and get security clearance to do some of the hearings behind closed doors. But the Liberals have been uh, filibustering, trying to prevent that from happening, which just shows we need an independent inquiry. And when I say independent, that means Trudeau cannot choose the commissioner who heads up the inquiry. Because when he's had a chance to choose uh, watchdogs, he's chosen Morris Rosenberg, formerly of the Trudeau Foundation, and David Johnson, an old family friend who are not independent watchdogs. He cannot be trusted to choose the inquiry commissioner. All the opposition party leaders have to be involved and they have to reach consensus on someone who would actually do an impartial inquiry. That is Duff Conacher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time tonight. Thank you very much. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Allen Cup champion, real estate magnate, Favorite for Dundas Citizen of the Year, Don Robertson joins me. Don, how are you? Good. That's how uh, Citizen of the Year happened last time. 2014, we won the Allen Cup. So it's a shoe-in this time. If you're if, So if, if, if any of these, since wagering is everywhere now, <laughs> if there's wagering on the Dundas Citizen of the Year race, you are a shoe-in. I don't know if a shoe-in, but if they keep with the same criteria. I mean, come on. Who else? Which I thought was flawed. Who else in Dundas is there? See? Exactly. I'll let you think about that 21, one. 21,000 people. Um, yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, so, I didn't know if you were a man uh, who believed in miracles, but after Saturday night, do you now? The Leafs won a playoff series. They did, and they they get full marks. Their best players were better than Tampa's best players. and Were they? 
I mean, I, I, look, I'm not taking anything away from the Leafs, and I'm certainly not taking anything away from the Leafs' celebration and fans' enjoyment, none of that. They won fair and square and were full marks for it. But there were some of those games where Toronto played for seven minutes and were good enough to recover in those seven minutes, and Tampa was better for 53 minutes. They still were good enough, and they did it. But I think they're going to have to be a little better than that going forward. So, well, we're talking about this series now. And um, Tavares scored the overtime winner. Yep. Matthews led the series in goal scoring. Yep. Marner led the series in points. Yep. And I said their best players were their best players. In the past, in in recent history, that just hasn't been the case with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And oddly enough, I think Toronto's goaler was better than Tampa Bay's. I, yeah, I would agree. And Tampa Bay's goaltender is considered the best on the planet. Yep. So when you combine all those things, that's what they've needed in the past, and that's what they've lacked in the past. And their muckers outwork Tampa's muckers, and they deserve full credit. Now, here's the weird part. They won three games in Florida all in overtime. Yep. Like, when you beat out somebody that's been to the Stanley Cup Finals three years in a row and beat them every game in their building— that's an accomplishment. I don't think the parade route has been set, but it's it's getting uh, lined up. That, though, is Leafian, although usually the other direction. If you were going to say that one team was going to lose three games at home in overtime, based on <laughs> recent and not even necessarily recent history, and you said, Don... You must wager $1,000 which team is going to lose three times in overtime at home. I think almost everybody around here would have said, that's got to be the Leafs. They will find a way to cause their fans pain. It's amazing to me. I mean, it's great, but it's amazing to me that that it was Tampa that was facing that, not the other way around. Yeah, it was. And um, it, But, you know, I mean, in, you look at the series, and I'm telling you, this matters. Um, when you... When you go to the Stanley Cup Finals three years in a row, you're playing a whole lot of heavy hockey more than anybody else is. And I I think that matters. I really do. And, you know, the year before they started their little run, I'm talking about the, the Lightning, they got beat out in the first round. So every, nobody had any – they weren't beat up from the playoffs. They didn't have to work too hard, and they got beat out. So they were kind of raring to go the next year. So that has some impact on it. Again, they went to the Stanley Cup Finals three years in a row, and that is, I mean, that's hard to do. That's a lot of heavy hockey. Yeah, and, you know, going back to the Leafs for a second, we're going to talk about a lot of these things, but I'm still trying to figure out, and again, it's it's not a criticism. It's not a taking away from the Leafs' win. They, you know, it... Sports works that you have to score one more than the opposition. However you do it, if you do it, you win. And that's a fair and square win. I'm trying to figure out why it is that the Leafs seem to be the one team in the NHL that never, ever seems to do anything the easy way. I mean, they won game two easy, but as far as a series goes... Like, there, when was the last time, and it was probably, honestly, it was probably before I was born... And maybe not even that. When was the last time that you can remember the Leafs did something and it, you went, oh, 
That was nothing. That was easy. That was foregone. Well, the Stanley Cup playoffs, even before, you know, this is hundreds of years ago now, even before when I was born, um, have never been easy. The, no, only, the, only time, the only time that the Stanley Cup playoffs seemed to be at their easiest point was when the Montreal Canadiens would face the St. Louis Blues and beat them three, three straight and win a Stanley Cup, and it was the best of seven. Yeah, but that was, yeah, when they had the expansion, the two conferences and one was all expansion, so you knew you were going to get a... Easy pass. Yeah, an easy pass. So my question, I go back to this one. The last time, when do you think was the, what year do you think was the last time the Leafs swept a playoff series? I would count that as doing something the easy way or easy-ish. When was the last Leafs sweep, would you say? I don't remember the year, but I'm going to bet you it wasn't a four to seven. It was a four to seven. It was. It was. Detroit? It was 2000, 2001. They beat Ottawa in four. So we're talking almost a quarter of a century. Now, there's a lot of years they haven't won anything at all in that time, but nonetheless. Well, I want to play off round of 19. No, I know, but I mean, it's been, it's been 20, almost a quarter century. And then if I go back before then, um, I'm just looking here. Uh, the, la- the, the sweep before then was what you were saying was only a three out of five. That was 85, 86. So in the last 40 years, twice the Leafs have swept a playoff series. Twice. Okay, so if we're going to do math like that. How many sweeps were there last year in the playoffs? You know what? I bet there were, I, I don't have it right in front of me. I bet there were three or four at least. think so? I would say so, three or four at least. This year was unusual. This first round that they were all pretty competitive was unusual. Yeah. Well, you've heard me say multiple times that oftentimes the best series are in round one. Sure. Whether it's Colorado, Seattle, I mean, I don't know who it might be, but oftentimes the first round is the best because everybody's fresh. I mean, we find out today uh, Bergeron was playing with a broken... With a herniated disc. For back. Boston, for Boston, yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the crack, and I'm jumping all over the place here, and we will get to some sort of uh, more of a straight shot in a second here, but we... As I say, the other day I was saying off the top of the show that we, my family and I were out west for a few days, just got back, and one of the places we stopped as we're driving around in Seattle was this sporting goods store right near Lumen Field, which is the Seahawks Stadium, and T-Mobile Park, which is this, the Mariners Stadium. They're right beside each other. And there's this huge sporting goods store that had all the Seattle team's stuff in there. So the Seahawks and the Mariners and the... Sounders, the soccer team, and um, whatever else. They even had Seattle Supersonics gear from the old defunct NBA team. And they had this huge store of everything. One hanger row of Kraken stuff. Just one. That was it. No sweaters, no jerseys, just a couple hoodies. That are, was it. Are they not a licensed seller? I mean, there's got to be something to that. They had, well, they had some of them in there, but I'm looking, I wonder if things change. And, and I'll be honest with you, in the time we were in Seattle, and it was not a long, long time, but we did not see one person wearing a Kraken hat or shirt. We did not see one sign, go Kraken. We didn't, like, there was nothing. 
there. Now, maybe that changes now that they win a playoff series against Colorado. Maybe you look like you matter because you just beat out the Stanley Cup champions. And, it, yeah. you know, I mean, it took years ago in the what, early 90s when the Florida Panthers went on their run to the finals, the rats thing happened with the plastic yeah. rats. So maybe it takes something like this, but there was no evidence in the city that the Kraken existed there. Just like Toronto now. Hmm. Hey, do you think Toronto won the Stanley Cup? Well, it's, 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 yeah, it was the opposite. I mean, it just, it was amazing though. It'll, it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the Kraken have existed for two years and have a playoff series win. The Leafs took almost 20 (laughs) to get theirs. We'll see who lasts longer now, but, um, yeah, lots, lots going on. We're going to, we've got lots of stuff to talk about. We're going to take a break here. Uh, lots more with Don Robertson. We'll try and find a narrative here. We're jumping all over the place. Yes. Before we go. Yes, I have to do one thing. I've yeah, the hand was raised. So you either have to go to the bathroom or you yes. have a question. I already went to the bathroom during our talk. <laughs> uh, I got these new fancy underwear you can wear now. You can do that. Uh, a very dear friend of mine and a great Leaf fan and uh, Sue's kid's grandpa Yes. turns 90. Walter Rickley is celebrating his 90th birthday. And he likes to Today? Li- yes, he likes to listen in. And he's a big Leaf fan, and uh, he had they had a party for him yesterday, and people from Switzerland, which is where he was born, come in for the party. And I understand it was a wonderful celebration. Suze was under the weather. We didn't go, but uh, by all accounts and all the pictures, it was wonderful. So I just want to say hi to Walter and enjoy your day. Walter, happy birthday. And uh, Walter shares a birthday with my daughter, whose birthday it is today as well. So there you go. Walter, Victoria, both of you, happy birthday. Don, one of the, uh, we're talking about the Leafs, one of the predictable, I suppose, but kind of ridiculous things that's going on now is the Florida Panthers, who the Leafs play in the next round, beginning tomorrow evening. Uh, Leafs have home ice advantage, so in games three and four, when the games are in Sunrise, Florida, the Panthers have banned ticket sales to anyone outside the United States to try and stop Leaf fans from filling the building and taking over. Is this the stupidest thing a pro sports franchise can do? Especially a Florida hockey franchise tell Canadians they're not wanted? I I don't think so. And um, here's the interesting part is the fact that the Toronto Maple Leafs don't have to worry about banning Americans from buying their tickets because there aren't any. Because they can't afford it. Even <laughs> they, they can't afford one. it. Yeah. That's right. Well, it's probably be cheaper to buy a Florida Panthers season ticket than a pair for the Leafs. Yeah. And that, that may yeah. be a fact. Yeah, that's true. For the playoffs, I would bet you're right. B- but it's a sad commentary that they actually have to block Canadians. So if I want to go to the game and I say, do you want to be whipped out and, and take in two games? I have some American friends that will buy me tickets. Like, you don't have to be, I mean, if you can't figure that out, you're in big trouble. It does seem odd. I <clears throat> I wonder what the National Hockey League think of it. Well, see, before we get to that, and I want to get to that point about the NHL. The reason I said that it's it's stupid for two reasons. One, because I think it's almost challenged Leaf fans to find ways in now. That's the first one. And I think you'll end up with more fans there for the Leafs than you would have before. But the second thing, this is a franchise that, during the regular season, struggles to get people into the building a lot of the time. And many of the people who come are snowbirds. And I just, I understand what you're doing that you want to have home ice advantage in the playoffs. But I don't think you, of all franchises, should be telling Canadians, screw off, we don't want you. You should be begging them to come 
even if it means you don't have that home ice advantage. So you're assuming, and I would would agree, that a fair percentage of the fans that come may well be Canadians. I would like I would very much assume you that. and I, and we've never done this and probably never will, but if you and I went down golfing and it was half an hour away and Pittsburgh or Winnipeg were in, we said, why don't we move over and take a look at the rink? Tickets are only $6. They're cheaper than the real McCoy tickets. And we'll go to a game. And uh, so do you lose that next year? But be interesting to see what the percentage of Canadians are that make up their regular season audience. Like if and it's 40%, this is not a very clever marketing move. I, even if it's not, even if it's not 40%, I mean, there's a lot of nights when there, you probably couldn't break down it into a percentage because there are so few people in the building. But... Um, if you've got that many Canadians down there, this is some, this is an audience that you're targeting to try and get them to come, even if they're not already. It just, you know, it was one thing when it was Ottawa Senators fan, uh, the Ottawa Senators trying to block Leaf fans once upon a time, because you're in Canada and if the Senators do okay, you're going to be fine. You'll get people to come out to the games. Yeah. The, this is different. In the years that the Florida Panthers are not great. They don't generally do well in attendance. You need, I think, to open the door as wide as possible to everyone. I get what you're trying to do. I get that you don't want to have it as a Leaf home game on the road. I understand that. But I saw today that one of the people who works, I think, for the Buffalo News or one of the Buffalo media said, you know, Buffalo Sabres, and he was being serious, the Buffalo Sabres should seriously consider doing this. I was like, are you kidding? Like, one time, I don't know if it's still the case, I, one time the number was something like 30% of Buffalo Sabres fans came from Canada. Like, I get that you want to have home ice advantage, but you don't have a team if you don't have people come to your building. I, 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 you know, I've run hockey teams for a long time. I don't care who buys the tickets as long as we sell them all. I, you know, if. If uh, we played Clarenville Newfoundland in the finals, and uh, we did in 1987 in Brantford, and we had to think about what we were doing, the the, the Newfoundland club in um, Cambridge come up and wanted to buy a thousand tickets. We're going. Hmm. When I talked to Bill, I said, "You know what? Somebody's going to buy them. Let's sell them." And they were very well represented, and we just didn't not want to have a sellout. And if they wanted to buy a thousand tickets back then, then. Buy a thousand, buy a thousand tickets. So we sold them to them. Like, so what? Well, let's go to your other question because you raised a really good point. I, I would love to know what the NHL thinks about this in a franchise that, uh, again, that has struggled at times selling tickets. I, I wonder if the NHL looks at this and goes, okay, that's fine. You do that. Or if the NHL thinks, wait a second, you're getting revenues in this shared deal at times from Canadian teams. They've propped you up over the years. Is this, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I know some people think, oh, this is really funny. I look at this and I, I see it a little bit differently. Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. On the other hand, it also seems like it's kind of missing the point. The Rogers TV deal, um, as I understand it, will, will be shared with. All the teams, not just the Canadian teams. Yeah. Yes. That is a very significant um, revenue from a Canadian broadcaster. You're you're right. I mean, I wonder if they blurted that out their pie hole before they ran it by the NHL. They oh, must have. I'm sure. 
I'm sure, but other teams have tried this before. Other teams have done it. I, I know that Carolina has a thing in, they're being even more specific, apparently. I didn't read it that closely, but apparently Carolina was blocking ticket sales to anyone not living in Carolinas, in the two Carolinas or part of Virginia. So they're really being specific. Like we only want people, be, and I guess it's the Eastern Seaboard, so there's more teams that could possibly get there. Nonetheless, I I, I don't know. It, it, it seems that you just, I'm with you. You sell the tickets to whoever's going to buy the tickets. Well, if the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to do that and block ticket sales to anybody from the state of Florida, then somebody else can buy those two tickets. Yeah. Well, see, the Leafs, the Leafs actually figured out the right way to do it. And if Florida had been clever, what they would have done, see, the Leafs' way to prevent anyone who's not a Leaf fan from buying tickets is just to sell them at the prices that they can get for a Leaf game. If you, if you want to pay 1000 bucks or whatever it is, or 1200 or 1400 for a pair for the second round, if you're willing to pay $1,400, there's probably not a lot of non-Leaf fans who would do that, especially from Florida. So you don't have to, if, now if the Panthers had been clever, rather than putting a ban on it, you raise the ticket prices so high that it's no longer feasible for Leaf fans to come down. Now that you'd also make all your fans stay home. Nobody would be in the rink. No, but yeah, but here, here's what a marketing guy could have done. Taken a look at the ticket prices to get into the uh, Scotiabank Center and say, these guys are used to paying $1,100 for this pair. So we're going to charge you $1,100 and we're going to only charge you 1100 Canadian. Now, the Panthers fan that's sitting beside you will be very pleased. You might not be pleased that they paid $65 a ticket. Yes. But you can buy them, but you're buying them at the price that you're used to paying. Well, don't, doesn't almost every other sport, especially football, if you go to the Super Bowl, for example, the, the tickets are sold, but there is a chunk of, yep. there is a, a, a cluster <clears throat> of seats for each of the teams. And if you go, I know this for a fact, if you go to, if your team is in March Madness and you're playing NCAA basketball, there is a cluster of seats that can be purchased by the fans of a particular school that's in playing at that arena. I don't know why the NHL just doesn't do that. Well, I think they do. And I think when they're on the road, there's an allotment of tickets for the visiting team, but the numbers are like two or 300. And these guys are trying to block because assuredly, and um, you with the computer in front of you will find out quicker than me, um, you can probably get it. Well, I won't guess at what you can get a pair of tickets at, but assuredly, you can buy two Florida Panther playoff tickets, go to Buffalo, fly down to the game, stay overnight, and come back again for less than $1,100 a pair. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I don't know. I did try today to look up what a pan- pair of Panthers tickets would be. Yep. They don't say. You have to log in. You have to click on to get into the queue. And I'll be honest, I was concerned that somehow I might end up accidentally buying some tickets. <laughs> well, they won't sell them to you. And, well, I, you know, Don, you would think that's the case, but uh, I have enough experience accidentally pressing something or getting into some line that I shouldn't have been in. How did you make out with your March Madness tickets in Buffalo? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a, yeah. I eventually <laughs> got rid of them, but I had eight pairs once upon a time. Uh, all I needed was to turn to my wife and say, oh yeah, I just bought 
Florida Panthers tickets want to go to Sunrise uh, would not have gone over particularly well. Don, there is a cliche that is thrown out all the time. Anytime a coach is fired of an NHL team, and Daryl Sutter was fired today from the Calgary Flames or last night, within the last 24 hours, I can't remember when. Uh, and there's always, well, you can't fire all the players, so you fire the coach. And yet, this is an example where I look at this and I, you know, yeah, he didn't, they didn't have a good year. But they had a fantastic year last year. The general manager, some moves were made because they didn't keep Johnny Goudreau and Kachuk went down to Florida. They traded for a Huberdeau who fell off completely. They traded for Kadri who didn't have a good year. To me, I look at this as the ex- clear example of this is a general manager issue, not a coach issue. And yet the general manager, you know, the coach is, is now gone. Didn't the general manager get fired last yeah, week? Yeah, but, but... Like the GM got fired the week before. But I'm looking at this like, okay, but... And I know that you say, well, you got to have your own coach in place. It, nonetheless, it struck me that there are times when you look at a coach, to me, and you say, well, I don't know that this is on him. If the GM made the moves that didn't work out, that's on him, not the coach, right? Or yep. am I wrong? No, no, you're right. And they, um, it also tells me that somebody else has got their fingers in the hockey pie other than the general manager. And that, that that's where you need the insider information, right? You need to know what's really going on because for all we know, the general manager was making some of those moves against his better judgment that were made, like bringing the guy in from Florida that had fallen off the Well, map. so Kachuk said that he was not going to re-sign in, in Calgary, so they had to trade him, and there weren't many teams that he was going to go to. I mean, he really had all... So that one, he had all the power. The player had the power, the GM had to do something. So that's not entirely... But again, if you're the coach... That doesn't seem to me, there are times when I look at a coach and I go, that guy did a crappy job. Yeah. And there are times when you look at the coach and you go, that guy was handed a pile of turd to have to try and turn into lemon meringue pie. Yeah, he couldn't make chicken salad out of it. Yeah. And it just, this one, I'm not a, I'm not a Daryl Sutter fan or Syncophant or, uh, you know, frankly, I find his act kind of ridiculous most of the time, the sort of, just sort of grunting, grumbling thing. I don't, I, it's, you know, but. It's pretty old school. Yeah, but it just, to me, it was, to me, this is the, this is one of those examples of a coach getting the shaft because I don't think it was hit on him. I think it should have been up to the next general manager if he wanted to keep Del Sutter, not the owners. Like who made that call? You fire your GM and not your coach. If you're doing that, fire them both the same day. Yeah. Now, who knows what went on last week, whether he said, if you don't hire the GM I want, I'm out of here. Like, Sutter's not scared to say what he thinks, or I want to be the GM. Or you, you, I mean, like I say, you need insider information. You need some intel to find out what was really going on, because otherwise you're on the outside guessing, and it's hard to guess. But the firing a GM one week and a coach the next week when you don't have a GM is seems a little odd. Well, okay, so so um, Don Maloney came in as the new interim GM there, and he was the one, apparently, I guess, because he's the new boss who pulled the trigger on Sutter. Again, I look at this as it's kind of a low-hanging fruit, schmarmy move to do this. 
Because again, you're there now because the GM didn't do well enough to stay there. Why are you hanging this on that coach for doing that's the part I just don't I don't get at times because it's it's almost like it's so easy. You know, you're right when you say most GMs want to hire their own coach, but the one interesting thing always is Kyle Dubas has had this opportunity, I believe, if my math is correct. He's never fired a coach he hired. No. He fired Mike Babcock. So when you inherit a coach and you want to evaluate your team and see what's the best thing to do with it, you've got a free pass to gas the guy you didn't hire. And that's not considered on you or your mistake. And if they were that bad, he could do that in January next year or whenever he wanted to. But when you do it right right out of the blocks and you want that job, if he, if he hires somebody and things don't go well, they're, you've used that bullet. There are people in the media, and you understand how this works, but these guys, all these guys going, so that was a good idea getting rid of Sutter, eh? This guy actually has a worse record, and you fired him. So now you have to wear it immediately. Yeah, yeah. Because to me, again, maybe maybe this is my lack of confidence in myself or something. I don't know. But if I'm the new GM coming in, I want to have that coach there as a buffer because you're right. If all of a sudden this doesn't work next year, well, you know what? This you didn't fix the team. We yeah, we tried it. You know, I, I, I want to keep him, Sutter. You know, I like him and everything else, but it just seems that the boys have t- tuned him out. Well, you've lost that card now. Not that I really care much about the Calgary Flames, but... No, it's, it's got nothing to do with the Calgary Flames except for the fact that this was... They did it. <laughs> but this was, to me, one of the clearest examples of moves. You had a great team last year. Yep. The moves were made that all seemed to blow up. Yeah, and n- the, coach, none of them went well. the coach was a terrific coach last year when he had players, and now you give him a bunch of worse players, and, man, he's a crappy coach. Yeah. Well, that's that, that to me does not add up. That to me is, that, that's, you know, that's, I don't know. It, I mean, I'm trying to think of another good example, but, I mean, if, if, you, if you put a teacher, if you give a teacher a class of kids that always fail and then switch the class and give that same teacher a bunch of kids who are A students who work hard, has that teacher become better or that teacher become worse when those classes switch? No, it's it's who you've given that teacher that are going to make them look good. I, I said for years, and it's not a popular statement around here because he's a beloved man, and I, you know, I, I'm not trying to dump on Pat Quinn. Pat Quinn was an amazing coach when he had great goaltending. And when Pat Quinn did not have amazing goaltending, he wasn't as good a coach. Now, that's the same for every single coach that's ever existed. But when Pat Quinn had had Ed Bell, had Cujo, yep. whew, wow, was he ever a great coach? You, you know, it it like you don't change that much as a coach. It's not you who's changed; it's the pieces. There's no coincidence that the MVP of the last two Allen Cups played in Dundas was was Mike Molar goalie. Yeah, and we won. I you've heard me say it. I bring it out about every five years. What Jacques the Mares used to say when he coached the Montreal Canadiens. The better Patrick Waugh played, the better I coach. That's exactly right. And he got it. He understood it. If Glenn Sather had not been the coach, now Glenn Sather built his own, he was the GM as well, so it's it's not a perfect example. But, okay, let's use a different example. Scotty Bowman. Scotty Bowman coached the Montreal Canadiens during their glory years. Ken Dryden. 
Ken Dryden, Serge Savard, Larry Robinson, Guy Lafleur, Steve Shutt, Yvonne Lambert, you know, Yvonne most Conway, of the Hall of Fame. All re-restarted. Like, th- yeah, he had a team of Hall of Famers. Did that mean that Scotty Bowman was the greatest coach ever because of that team? Well, Scotty Bowman went and coached. He was with the St. Louis Blues. Now, did they win a Stanley Cup? No. When Scotty Bowman coached the Pittsburgh Penguins with Mario Lemieux and Yarmir Yager and Ron Francis. Well, actually, they did win a Stanley Cup. I know, they did. I'm saying, when you then he, the St. And, Louis Blues never did. And so did Detroit. But none of them won without good goaltending and, and great, great players teams, and know. great players. So if, uh, my point is, if you, I'm not again dumping on Scotty Bowman, but if you had put Scotty Bowman as the coach of the Kansas City Scouts back in the expansion years, when Eddie Bush, the old Hamilton Red Wing coach, was there, yeah, you'd, you'd struggle. Or, or uh, Don Cherry in Colorado. Yes, yes, Don Cherry was the Don great. Sh- Don Cherry. He was a fantastic coach in Boston. And he got fired in Colorado. Did he was he suddenly a very different coach who lost his ability to coach, or was it the players he was given? You know something I like that I saw this week. Like I, first of all, I, I saw only part of Rick Bonus's press conference in Winnipeg, where he just laid a bunch of players out. Yep, and which I, never happens. Never happens. So I got thinking. Well, he he knows he's done, and he's going out his own way. His GM, Shevel Day Op, just announced he's coming back next year. Which is going to be one awkward dressing room for a while. Well, but if you look at it, I think, and I don't study it that closely because I'm not interested, but a lot of the guys he called out are going to be free agents. Yeah, and? And he just reduced their market value. He did. And the other thing is that those who are coming back now know the GM is behind the coach. Yeah. So he's so not lame duck. He's not a lame duck coach. And so you better, if you want to play, you this coach, you better actually. So th- this is this goes one of two ways for him. Rick Bonus is either going to have a team next year that goes through the wall for this guy, blocks every shot, plays every shift like it's their last, or they absolutely wet the bed intentionally in. to try and get him fired. It's going to be one of the two. Well, the GM's got his back. So the GM obviously had the same opinion as Bonus. But my point is, just to have an NHL coach say, my best players basically took the series off. They weren't my best players. People we counted on weren't there. I mean, he was... Blunt. (laughs) He was blunt. Blunt. He was as blunt as I've ever heard a coach ever, which, you know, as as you say, that's fantastic. I love that he did that. I love that he... And I wonder if one of the Leafs coaches either Keefe or Babcock before him had done that after one of their playoff losses rather than the, oh, we've learned lessons and blah, blah. If they had come out and said, our guys were soft and unwilling to commit and unwilling to sacrifice, would that have led us to where we are today two or three or four years earlier? Remember, the circumstances are far different. The guys that Keith would have had to lay out all had long-term huge contracts. Yep. The guys in Winnipeg don't. Don Robertson, without a bad sports nickname, as far as we know. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you doing this. Back next Monday, folks. We'll be here at six tomorrow. What was your happy birthday? Your friend's name for happy birthday? Walter. Walter, happy birthday, Walter. Thanks for listening, Victoria. Happy birthday. We'll see you soon. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.